I want you to imagine that you're watching a boxing match on TV. And the boxing match includes a guy named Tyson Fury. Now, if you're not familiar with Tyson Fury, he is a heavyweight boxer who has had 31 matches, 30 of which he's won, 21 by knockout. And so if you are watching Tyson Fury, do you think somewhere along the way you might get the sense or begin to think, oh, I could totally beat this guy. I, I bet if I paid attention to his, his moves, I, I watched how his jabs worked, and I, I saw how he misdirected his punches, I could probably get in the ring and beat this guy. Now, I hope you're not thinking that. If you were, I think you'd be sorely mistaken. In fact, I think this story would prove that or illustrate that. There was a guy named Shane. He was in his late 20s, decided that to get in shape, he would do some boxing. A friend of his owned a gym, and so they would go down there and they would work away at learning some basics of boxing. Two months into it, Shane decided he was ready to spar. Now, sparring is getting into the ring, and it's not a real match. Everybody's punching at about 50% of their normal power. Now, by the way, I would take it very personally if you thought I had to Google this information, that, that a person like me wouldn't just naturally know all of that. But, but back to the story. So um, Shane says he's ready to spar with someone, but the only other person in the gym is a guy named Tony. And Tony is a Golden Gloves featherweight winner. And so the trainer tries to tell Shane, no, there's no way you could beat Tony in a boxing match. But Shane knows he's 100 pounds heavier than Tony, and so he says he can do it. So they get into the ring, and they begin to spar. If you were to ask Shane, how did it go, best Shane could do is shrug his shoulders. The very first punch that Tony threw knocked Shane out cold. See, when it comes to battles and to fights, we need to be aware of what we can and what we cannot do. See, this morning we're going to approach the temptations with the understanding that Jesus is our representative champion in the ring. I mean, there's no way that we're ever going to be able to get in the ring against the devil and knock him out unless Jesus has first done that. Jesus can, after he is our champion, he can serve as our coach. But first, we need to know and be reminded that Jesus has won the wilderness victory on our behalf. See, what we witness in the temptation is a cosmic rumble in the jungle between mankind and the devil. Now, if you were to look at the beginning of your Bible, you would see the first recorded confrontation between mankind and the devil, and that was in the garden. There, mankind was represented by Adam and Eve, and there was a confrontation. But notice that when Adam and Eve first face the devil, they were enjoying the richness of the garden. They were prepared physically, they were strong, and there was just plenty and fullness all around them. And yet, even in the best of context, those representing mankind were not faithful to their God. So that begs the question, what makes any of us think that we're going to be able to enter into a time of testing? What makes any of us think that we're going to be able to live in the wilderness and come out of that without being knocked out? The answer, of course, comes by reading the temptations and understanding Jesus as our representative champion.
Now, to help illustrate this concept of a representative champion, maybe we can go to one of the best known stories in scripture, the story of David and Goliath. And, and that will help us understand this concept. So if you remember, Goliath would go out to the very edge of the mountainside and he would come as he would appear. Of course, he's, he's a huge, tall guy and he would be covered from head to toe in all of this protective gear. And he would stand out there in the presence of the Israelites and he would yell at them, choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. This is a representative battle. Essentially, they're each saying, pick your fittest, strongest, most capable warrior, and he will face our fittest, strongest, most capable warrior, and whoever wins will let the armies know which is the more powerful. If our strongest person can be your strongest person, then we know that our army could be your army. So in some ways, this notion of a representative champion is strange to us. But in many ways, we're perfectly comfortable with the idea. Think about the cross. On the cross, we understand that Jesus died in our place. By his wounds, we have been healed. So our righteous standing before God is on the basis of what Jesus has done as a representative for all of humanity. So I think as we read the temptations, we read it by realizing Jesus is representing us there. He is going into the wilderness on our behalf. But if he is going to represent humanity in the garden, or sorry, in the desert, then he has to do that as a human being. Remember last week we learned from Luke 3 that Jesus is first of all God's son, but he is also a son of Adam. So the question is, how is Jesus going to approach the temptations? Will he do so on the basis of being God's son, or on the basis of being a son of Adam. And what the first temptation highlights is the humanity of Jesus. He does not eat, he is hungry, and he is tempted to turn a stone into bread. So the temptation is for Jesus to access or utilize his humanity. So if he does that, he reaches into his humanity, he will no longer be enduring the temptations as a man, and thus he can no longer represent mankind as they deal with these evil forces. Maybe one way to think about it is to imagine these two guys who are roommates, John and Sam. But before long, it becomes pretty evident that their backgrounds are completely different. John, the son of a billionaire, Sam growing up in low-income housing. And it's their wealth that becomes this issue for them. And Sam claims that as long as John has his dad's credit card and access to all of his dad's resources, he will never understand what it's like to be him. But the question would be then, would John be willing to give up access to all of those things in an effort to identify with Sam? See, if you think about Jesus in his deity, we could ask the question, how would deity respond to these temptations? Well, first of all, we know that God doesn't hunger. And, and so the fact that Jesus hungers shows that he is having a human experience. 
And so as he has these human experiences, will he handle them or deal with them in human ways? And therefore he can represent humanity or is he going to reach over into his divinity and essentially cheat or essentially use his father's credit card, taking advantage of what it means to be the son of God? See, when Jesus is tempted to turn the stone into bread, he is tempted in something that in many ways we are not tempted with. But what, Jesus, what Satan is trying to get Jesus to do, the core of the temptation is about Jesus claiming his uniqueness and accessing his divinity in such a way that we can no longer relate to him and in such a way that he can no longer serve as our human representative. See, Jesus is invited to do something that we cannot do. And the question becomes, will he? Because if he does... Humanity will in many ways, whether God allows it or not, humanity would reject him as our representative because we would say he, pro he, po he could not possibly understand our struggles, our temptations, our battles. He doesn't know what it's like to live in the wilderness as a human being. But of course we know that Jesus does represent humanity because he's faithful in his full humanity in his wilderness times. That's why the author of Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet is without sin. So in this cosmic rumble in the jungle, it's not just Jesus versus the devil but it's mankind represented through Jesus versus the devil. His loss would be our loss, and his victory would be our victory. So Jesus is in the one corner representing humanity, and in the other corner is the devil. And as the gospel writers describe him, the devil has authority over the kingdoms of this world. He says of that authority that it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. Now, some people think that the devil is just claiming to have this authority, but we all know that he really doesn't. But wouldn't Jesus be smart enough to pick up on that? Wouldn't Jesus just simply say, you can't offer me that? How much of a temptation is there in someone promising to do something that they have no access to do? If I told you to do something, and if you did it, I would give you a million bucks, and you knew I didn't have a million dollars, there's likely no temptation involved in that. So Satan is presented as one who has certain power and certain authority. And so what Jesus needs to do is he needs to somehow address that. He needs to go face-to-face -face with the devil because the devil is like Tyson Fury in the ring. And there's no way we can even begin to get into the ring unless Jesus does something first. That's why in Luke 11, where Jesus is accused of casting out demons in or by the power of Satan, he says in response, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his castle, his property is safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him, and overpowers him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his plunder. So the devil is the strong man and Jesus is the stronger one. 
and Jesus will overpower him, and then he can divide his plunder. What is the plunder? The plunder is all the rewards, all, all the benefits of the victory. So who is Jesus dividing it with? He is sharing the plunder with humanity. He battles the devil on our behalf, and then he shares the spoils of his victory with us. So in the desert, Jesus represents humanity. But Jesus also will retrace the steps of Israel. And where Israel was unfaithful, Jesus will show his own faithfulness. See, when we read about Luke and the temptation, we begin to hear these echoes of something that sounds very familiar. Because in Luke 4.1 and in Deuteronomy 8.2, there's four words that are the exact same word. Led, 40, wilderness, and testing. That's no coincidence that there's an echo. See, where Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. See, the good news is that Jesus has begun to deliver that first blow to Satan on our behalf. He is beginning to cripple all that is evil and all that is wicked. It's our victory. I'm kind of a casual sports fan. I don't, I don't tend to watch a lot of sports until there's you know, a big thing, a Super Bowl or some sort of a larger event like that. So as the skeptic in me watches people whose teams win and they'll jump up and down and they'll say, we won, we won, we won. And I'm thinking, you didn't win. You didn't do anything there. But in the very same way, as Christ remains faithful in the temptations, that does become our victory. So as Christ is winning here, we can say, we win, we win, we win. We know that every wilderness season that we enter thereafter, we enter knowing that we have a champion who has gone before us. So that when we are weak, he is strong on our behalf. And Jesus does know that we will be tempted and that we will be tried. He knows that we will also have to enter into the wilderness. And so Jesus, who is the champion, can now look to us and begin to be our coach and to teach us how to enter into the wilderness and enter into temptation in a way that's different than Adam and Eve and in a way that's different than Israel so we too can be faithful in our own wilderness experience. So what can we learn from Jesus as we think about our own wilderness experiences? It was Timothy Keller who pointed out that the temptation is not merely a beha- about behavioral compliance. Jesus is not just teaching us how to be good little boys and good little girls. Jesus is teaching us about a particular attitude and relationship to God. In other words, what's being revealed is not just the right way to behave, but it's about the right way to view God that's going to lead to the right kind of living. And when you return to that first temptation of mankind, of Adam, you're going to find that that's the core difference, is how Jesus and Adam viewed God. See, in the garden, God simply said, do not eat the fruit of this tree. But God doesn't explain why or all the reasons. He simply calls Adam and Eve to love him and to trust him. But then the serpent comes in and says, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? And the focus, of course, is on the restrictiveness of God. Satan is trying to undermine the nature of God. So Satan is painting a picture of a God who is restrictive, self-absorbed, and selfish. 
See, the temptation is an assault on God's generosity. And because of that, if God is not good and God is not generous, then you cannot trust in God to provide. You have to take, like Adam and Eve did, you take matters into your own hand. Jesus, on the other hand, he believed in God's goodness. He believed that God would provide. And so he trusted him in that time. If you think about uh, Israel's wilderness experience, Deuteronomy 8.1 says, This entire commandment that I command you today, you must diligently observe so that you may live and increase and go in and occupy the land that the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. And what I want you to notice is God's intention, his desired end that they would live and increase and go in and occupy the land. See, what we need most in the wilderness is active trust in the goodness of God. We need a belief that God can and will provide everything that he's promised. I believe we're in a wilderness season. And I believe that Jesus has things that he can teach us and coach us with as we find ourselves in the wilderness. Romans 1.25 says of those who turned away from God that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And I think we have to be really aware in the wilderness about what the lies are and what the truth is. And I think there's especially two forms that we're going to experience lies right now. The first lie is that God isn't good. Are, are, are we believing this lie about God? I mean, the question that is at stake in our time is, can God be trusted to provide what is needed? Or, or do I have to take matters into my own hand? Can you lean on God, or are you afraid he's going to move and let you fall? Can you rest in God, or are you uncertain that God is going to be continuing to work while you rest? See, if God is not good, and God is not generous, and God is not for us, how does one come to have anything good in their life? Satan's answer is you have to take control. You have to fix it. You have to assert your own independence because Satan wants to move us away from trusting in God at this time. The second way I think that we will experience lies is that God is only good if, and then fill in the blank about what God might do. See, what this lie does is it tests us to confuse trusting and testing. I think that there's a lot of Christians out there who are professing trust, but really are displaying an attitude of practicing a lifestyle that looks more like testing. See, see, testing is telling God that if he really is God, he will show up in all the ways that we prescribe and in all the ways that we demand and at the time that we say he needs to do it. So someone testing God might say, we're going to continue meeting together as a church and we know we won't get sick. And when we don't get sick, that's going to be a testimony to you of how good God is, that God didn't let it happen. Or someone trusting who is testing God might say, well, I lost my job, but I'm not going to do anything about it because I'm just going to wait for God to show his goodness by giving me another job. 
Or someone testing God might say, God will be sure that by May 1st, all of this is over. See, trusting God in the wilderness means we often live with more questions than answers. How long is this going to last? What's going to be the economic impact? Am I going to lose my job? Am I going to get sick? Is everyone in my family going to to survive? Testing says, here's all the answers to those questions, but trusting says, God is good. And I'm going to trust him with all my questions. A person trusting God doesn't need answers to all those questions because they know that the wilderness is the place where there are more questions than answers. See, this week my encouragement to you is to humbly and faithfully live with all of those questions. To to recognize that this is a wilderness experience. That the things that we can know is that God is good. And that we can indeed trust Him. No, you're not going to have all the answers to your questions. But here's what we do know. Jesus, our champion has defeated the evil one. Yes, the evil one continues to work in certain ways. God wills and allows that. But Jesus has thrown already the knockout punch. And the second thing that we realize is that God is worthy of our trust because he is good. Live into the questions. Trust God. May God bless you.